Well, let's let's pray. We'll get where are all my flannel board people at. If you remember a flannel board, say hey. hey. Yeah, nice. Who does not know what a flannel board is? Derek does not. Wow. <laughs> oh, felt board. That's how you know. Okay. Well, let me pray for us, and we'll uh, wander through Old Testament narrative uh, the best we can. Father, you're kind and you are good, and we thank you that um, no matter the environment or the context, you're with your people, and we're grateful that uh, you would give us a roof uh, for the foreseeable future here, and we're thankful for all the hard work the guys have done and gals uh, for setting us up this morning. We, we pray you bless the gathering. Uh, would you corral our minds in a different new place, so would you focus our minds on your word on the glory of Christ, on the love for your people, so that uh, so that we can be filled uh, to the brim uh, with your grace to us in Jesus. And we pray all of this for his glory and name. Amen. Well, half the Old Testament is narrative or story, so we do well to pay attention to any of the principles that uh, would help us interpret those stories. None of this will be very much uh, new to you. Uh, we learned a lot of this stuff if you took literature class in school. Then you know how to read a story and how to pick out various elements of reading good stories and recognizing a good story for what it is. So this might be more refreshment and encouragement than it is a novel to you. Old Testament narratives are true theological stories in which the meaning is illustrated, not dictated. Duval and Hayes will say it this way. Rather than telling us how to live or how not to live, the narrative shows us how to live or not to live by the actions of the characters. That is a bit intuitive, uh, but that's a good summary of the purpose of Old Testament stories. Why do stories matter? Why do they work for us? We remember them. Yeah. What are some other benefits? Why would God give us stories for most of the Old Testament, especially? What, what is it about stories? Retell them. Yeah, amen. Remember them, retell them. Do we have another R? Relate to them. That's working well. Though you have, okay, okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Here's Duvall and Hayes' summary of all of that. Uh, they connect with everyone. Everyone loves a good story. We're drawn to them, whether we know that we're being told a story or not. We're, we're always drawn to hearing a story more than uh, maybe a lecture or something like that. Uh, stories draw us into the action through real characters, relatable characters. We find ourselves uh, embodying or more familiar with personalities and, and some personalities and, uh, of some characters and others. We find ourselves in them to some degree. Stories capture... Life's ambiguity and complexities. Look, man, nobody's life is a straight line. And no, no good story is ever a straight line. A good story is hardly predictable. It's, it's, it's always taking a left when we thought it was going right. It's keeping us off balance. Um, welcome to a sinful world. That's what sin does, and so that's what redemptive stories ought to do. Uh, they preserve a people. So, Dad, why is it like this? Mom, why do we do that? And 
Well, that's because this was passed down. We have a story to tell about why a thing is or a thing isn't. And ultimately, and most importantly, these stories personalize God. We, we find God inserting himself in, to one degree or another in these stories. Through a person, uh, through influences, we find God at work. And so we, we might say we see God incarnate in these stories uh, that make God near to us in a way that maybe he wouldn't otherwise be. So here's some literary features. This is where you come in and what you learned in lit school, uh, lit class in school. What are some features of stories that you ought, we ought to pay attention to? What are always consistent? What are always part of good stories? Yeah, protagonist or an antagonist. Yeah, that's right. So there's always a, a hero and an anti-hero of some degree. Third-person verbs, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> what, else, what else are features of good stories? Plot, yeah, excellent. You read the book? Yeah, Derek. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I, I think that's... Maybe all but one that we're going to list here. Yeah. Yeah, the moral of the story is, or what is it that we're supposed to learn? Do this, be like that guy, or don't be like that guy? Sure. Here's some features. Setting. Uh, so the narrators are going to give some sort of time stamp. In the Old Testament's case, in Israel's history, what time of day is it? What time of year is it? What time of redemptive history? What era are we in? What dynasty of kings are we in? Duvall Hayes used the example of, uh, and there, there are tons, but uh, at the beginning of Ruth, the author sets the story. When was Ruth set? In the time of the judges. And so the narrator knows, oh, he's, he's giving us a breadcrumb, isn't he? He's cluing us in. He's signaling something. He's under, he thinks and he knows that whoever's reading the story of Ruth also knows something about the account of the judges. And what do we know about the accounts of the judges? Good time or bad time? It's a bad time in Israel. So this story of Ruth now, we've got tons of bad judges and bad stuff going on in Israel, and lo and behold, here's a redemptive story shoved in there. That's masterful. That's good storytelling, isn't it? Someone, uh, or you may know this, in, uh, this is one of my favorites, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Someone want to look that up real quick if you don't have it memorized? Matt? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's some third-person verbs in there we don't, didn't know about. I don't know. Daniel 1, 1 and 2. Someone can read that when you get there. Out loud. Thank you, brother. The way I look at that doesn't matter the way I think, but it, it helps, maybe. Daniel 1.1 is what the newspapers say. 
Nebuchadnezzar rolled into town, took over the city, stole stuff from the temple. That's what the newspaper headline says. Israel knows better. Verse 2 says, but here's what's really happening. God is behind all of this, exposing idol worship, etc., etc. That's a, that's a setting issue. Now, what the newspaper might say and report is different than what God's people might say and report. Uh, parts of the setting are place. What did, it, what did it mean for Israel to, for help, say, in Isaiah 30, Duval Hayes, I think, bring this out. What did it mean for them to go down to Egypt? That's not just telling them travel plans. They're going down to Egypt in a physical sense, but what else does that mean? They're going to get help from a pagan nation, the nation that enslaved them before, you see. They're turning their back on Yahweh to go to Egypt. Things like cultural background are all part of the setting. Uh, These are all pretty intuitive for us. I think Roddy had mentioned plot. Uh, What is a plot? Let's not assume that we have a good grasp on that. Excellent. Yeah. Unfolding. How an author just ordered the, orders the events. He's not telling, he may not tell us everything, but he's giving us a certain order and certain events. We ought to pay attention to the, how he's plotting that, uh, literally. I think we've heard uh, sort of antagonist, uh, antagonist, protagonist, things like that. Uh, there's some sort of conflict or contest or suspense. Uh, there's some sort of disorder in the, in the nation or in a person. Often the conflict is between a person or a people and God himself uh, that overflows into conflict and suspense between either nations or people within a nation. Uh, good stories leave us. What, what will he do next? What's going to happen next? What's he going to do about that now? You see, it's interesting. When you read Jonah, you ought to pay attention to this. Uh, the authors, the narrators, very intentional. For the first part of Jonah, Jonah is always going down. Have you seen this? He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the hull of the boat to sleep. And eventually, where does he find himself? Down at the bottom of the ocean. Well, the narrator's doing that on purpose. He's not just telling us the, move, the physical movements of Jonah. Jonah's going down in every sense of the word, farther and further away from the Lord. There's often some sort of resolution, or should be, uh, some sort of resolution. Um, and every good story does, and biblical stories do. Um. Uh, Have you seen these, a show or a movie where the, it, it, the opening scene is actually the ending of the story? And then you're like, oh, and then eight months earlier or whatever it is. It, and then it ratchets back to get us to, well, I don't know, how did we get there? From where did we start? Uh, the Bible often does that. It gives us, it, it's a helpful way to read a good story. Uh, someone reads 2 Chronicles 21.1. 2 Chronicles 21.1. You can read it when you get there. It's 
So Jehoshaphat leaves a good legacy, buried with the kings. Jehoram inherits that. And you're like, oh, this is, Jehoram's in a good spot. Now, someone read, well, you can read since you're already there, verses 18 to 20. This is one of the most shocking, uh, sad eulogies, epitaphs, I think, in the Bible. Verses 18 through 20, 2 Chronicles 21. This is Jehoram, who we thought started off great. Can you imagine if, if the movie started there? And you think, this is Joshua's son. How in the world he died with no one's regret? Nobody cared. Good riddance. Couldn't wait to get rid of the guy. It's remarkable to, to plot that story from where it begins to where it ends. That's plot. Derek mentioned uh, motifs. So there's sort of archetypal motifs, uh, exemplary behavior or heroic or these sort of things that are true of all humanity to some degree, either good or bad. David's a hero. Abraham is a trap. We have all these stories that mirror that we can find ourselves in uh, that develops character, things like that. Characters, development. uh, The meaning of a narrative is flowing from the behavior of the characters. So the author is not telling us to think, believe, do. He's showing us. The narrator understands we know a good story and we're going we're gonna to connect, oh, that ought, we ought to be like that and not be like something else, you see. Um, what do we learn about pride from Samson? We ought not be like him. Uh, it's unbecoming of Israel's leaders to be like that, etc. What do we learn about humility from Jonathan and so on and so forth? Good stories have purposeful ambiguity. I think I'm summarizing Duvall Hayes there on the character development. They don't always tell us what a character is feeling. Um, they don't always tell us what a character is thinking. God, good storytelling sort of invites us in between the lines to some degree, but we have to be careful there uh, when we when we leave the lines and get, and get in between the lines and, and, and begin to interpret a text, well, he must have felt this. Well, we don't know if he felt that. Now, you or I may have felt a certain kind of way in a certain situation. We have no idea if he felt that way. If it mattered, the Lord would tell us in the story. And so we do have to explore. Good stories invite us to explore that. Let's be careful of imposing uh, maybe 21st century ideas of psychological development or issues and impose it. Well, because we, ha- we, we call this thing now, we call that this. Therefore, he must have felt that, right? We've got to be careful of imposing modern categories. Uh, it's easy to do in, with David in the Psalms. Oh, that David must have been bipolar. I, we have no idea. Nobody even... That wasn't even invented then. Nobody knows that. We, we, we wrestle with what the story tells us. Right? We have the narrator's viewpoint. Uh, those are the, maybe getting at those third-person verbs. So the narrator's telling 
drawing our attention to good stories. Some, sometimes the narrator tidies this up real easy, like this happened because of that. Other times it's subtle and it's artful and he doesn't tell us, sort of leaves a loose end, leaves the ending hanging and he expects us to make the connection. A great example, Duvall Hayes bring this out. In Judges 19, uh, an Israelite mob demands to rape a Levitical priest. Now the narrator knows he's telling a good story and the people he writes to understand good stories and the people that he's writing to, they know Genesis 19 where a sodomite mob tried to rape what, what was an angel of the Lord. They didn't know it was an angel. So, what, so when the, the narrator tells us about Judges 19, he's assuming you know what happened in Genesis 19. The chapters divisions weren't there. They understand you know, you know the story, the, the connection he's trying to make. What is the connection now that he's telling through the story? Israel has become what? Israel has become no different than Sodom. If you, if you want to be horrified at what happened in Sodom, the narrator leaves the breadcrumb to say, well, you ought to be horrified at yourselves, Israel. That makes sense? Good stories have comparison, contrast, how characters respond to God. Uh, our pastors went through Joshua, how rightly contrasting Rahab and Achan, how did they respond to God? Or, or how did God respond to characters? How did God respond to Hannah? Gave her a lot of kids. How did he respond to Eli? Dried up his line. You're not going to have any more kids. So how God responds to characters is integral to the story. And that's understanding the meaning of that. When you read the story of Saul and David, the, the narrator often draws attention to the, uh, the, the impressive outward appearance of Saul. Strong, always has a spear. This sort of physical, when you look at Saul, this is what he's presidential, etc., and in contrast to what appears to be David's weakness, he doesn't look the part. Through the story, he's drawing those contrasts out. Make sense? I don't want to spend too much time here for the sake of time for sure. Uh, stories have different styles, so all those features will likely be present in any given story. How an author gets to those features, that's the Lord's masterful work. Uh, the, the author could use irony. You know what, I, what is irony? We say something is ironic. Yeah. Yeah, what, what looks true on the surface isn't actually what is true. Right? In 1 Samuel uh, 5 and 6, the Philistines capture uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this? Like a rival school going to get the other school's mascot. You think if we steal their mascot, it sort of demonstrates superiority. Our guy beats your guy. And so the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant like they're stealing Israel's mascot. You remember what happened? Dagon, the Philistine god, falls face down, starts losing limbs. So what looks like on the surface, 
the irony is they thought they beat Yahweh, and here is Yahweh beating them with a wiggle of his pinky finger. Let's see. An author might use repetition. We learned this whenever we went through sort of tools before. Look, look for repeated words and repeated phrases, etc. Uh, Genesis 11, going through this after Babel, and every so-and-so had many sons and daughters and what? And he died. And he died. I don't know how many times we hear that. A couple of dozen. And he died. Until you get to verse 30, and you get to Abraham, and he's married to Sarah. There are three boys left Abraham's from Abraham's dad. One of them dies. you got two boys left. One is Abraham, who's married to Sarai. And what does the text say? And Sarai was barren. And you think, well, okay. Now we see where the story ends. There's one son left who can have kids. And lo and behold, it takes a hard left. And so out of, and he died, and he died, and he died, dead womb, comes what? Life. Now pay attention to those repeated words and phrases. When uh, David moves the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time, uh, his wife, I, I don't know if you pronounce that, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, Michael, uh, Michal maybe. Um, every time she's, she's, she doesn't take a liking to that, she doesn't like what David's doing to do this. And every time she's mentioned, she's Michael, daughter of Saul. Every time her name comes up, it's always appended daughter of Saul. Now, why would the narrator be doing that? Saul's dead. Yet, Saul is still dogging David. You see, um, that's good storytelling. Or, uh, I need, this is, uh, if you read in First and Second Kings, uh, you, have, you, have, you have a split kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and in First and Second Kings, every Judean king, the author, the narrator, for every Judean king tells us the mother. So-and-so becomes king. His mother was such-and-such and so-and-so. Such and so. Never tells us the mother's name of Israelite kings. Except for in Judea, the, we know the mom of every Judean king except for Ahaz. And the text says, who walked, now he's a Judean king, who walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He begins to embody the apostate traitor kingdom. You see. Ah. Narrator's telling us a good story. You ought to pay attention to those things. He might use satire. So for those of us with the spiritual gift of sarcasm, we are necessarily drawn to these. Like, oh, that's a, that's a great story where the satire comes in. Uh, we get that. Uh, fortunately, it's damaging to a lot of, we don't know how to rein that in like uh, the Bible does. Uh, one of which is David, David decapitated Goliath with Goliath's own sword, which we were told it weighs, you know, whatever, a hundred times or something. Not that, it was heavy. But what couldn't David, I mean, just earlier in the story, what couldn't David wear? Saul's armor. It's too big, too, too, too bulky, too cumbersome. And yet, it's almost like a wink, wink, he takes Goliath's own sword, chops off Goliath's head with it. It's, satirical and purposeful. Uh, we can't stress this enough. Uh, I suppose this is, gets said all the time. 
uh, we have to consider never leave, never wander far from the literary context. If all we read, say, for example, is Judges 16, 28 to 31, and sort of isolated that, we might think that, oh, God uses poor blind Samson as a heroic martyr, and he'll use you. But we know better, don't we? That story is not to highlight Samson as some heroic martyr. That, that is hardly the case of the narrator's story. Um, he used Samson despite himself, not because of him. So always uh, sort of flank the reading with... In, in fact, I'm, I might... Uh, if you have a Bible reading plan and, and you're wandering through the Old Testament and often they're broken down by chapter, you know, two or three chapters at a time, fine, keep doing that, do that. I might consider... Rather than just taking the chapters as they are, take the stories as they are. Almost like you're reading short stories. So find out where the story of one guy begins and ends and read that versus sort of breaking it up and sort of getting disrupted in the flow of the narrator's intention of us piecing together the character development. That makes sense? Yeah. Duval Hayes end with these very helpful Reminders, uh, good stories are rarely neat. They always, always leave us grasping, wondering, but, but this can't be true. He couldn't do that. Now what happens, you see? So a few reminders that Duval and Hayes uh, give us. And, and often we find the balance. Things get tidied up, if you will, or loose ends get tied together in the cross and resurrection. So when we find ourselves sort of at the end of an Old Testament narrative wondering, that shouldn't have ended that way, or that didn't seem right. Well, the cross resurrection might tidy that up. That what if God entered into that confusion or wickedness and solved that himself? Now, we don't want to always just sort of resort to that, wrestle with the story. Don't just kind of default and play the trump card of, well, I guess this gets figured out later. Uh, the stories are there for us to wrestle. Uh, leave us a little off balance until we find firm footing in the Lord. Um, one reminder that Duvall and Hayes give us is that people are complex. Man, we're complicated. Excluding God, uh, every Old Testament character is some sort of mixture of an imitable virtue, things we ought to be like and things we appreciate, we're drawn to, and say so that's, that's good about that guy or gal and avoidable vices. So Jacob's worthy of emulation in a number of ways, but the guy's a, he's a rascal, isn't he? Remember Abraham pimped out his wife? Sorry, I need to be a little more sensitive there. Uh, and lo and behold, Jacob did the same thing. So we, we find these it's good stories help us, invite us to wrestle with those characters. And think, How could this guy be that guy? I was reading this uh, this morning, uh, 1 Chronicles 32, Hezekiah. I mean, he's an all-star, all-star king. Everything is working for him. All the stuff's back. All the idols are gone. Defeats Sennacherib you know, through the Lord's help. The Lord rescues Judah. And there's this little bit in the story like, oh, but he got proud. Hezekiah got proud. God put his thumb on him for a little while. And uh, just, that's just good storytelling. Just when you think you're with a guy, all of a sudden you find his flaws.
Solomon. Um, we, we like early Solomon. Late Solomon isn't all that great to emulate. Right? Wisest guy in the world, gets blessed for it, but has a little trouble with the women. Right? It's good storytelling, man. Doesn't, we're not always, um, none of those guys are always messianic. They leave us uh, hungering for one. Avoid hagiography, I suppose, a way of summarizing. You know what hagiography is? What is hagiography? Yeah, in a very specific way. When you, when you look back on somebody's story that you know is up and down, but you write a story that makes them look awesome, no flaws, you made them, look to, uh, to, you made them to appear better than they really were, uh, we ought to do that. That's good storytelling, and the Bible does that. Um, very quick to remind us, these guys aren't always awesome. Characters are never monolithic. We know this. Uh, narrators develop characters like everyone develops, even Saul. Early Saul, you're like, this is a good guy. Maybe, maybe Israel's going to do okay with this guy. And it was not very long. We find out, no, he's not a very good guy. Uh, this is true not only with narrative, with parables, for example. Uh, how a story ends uh, zeroes us in on the meaning. So you want to know what a narrator intends for us to get out of whatever that story was he told. Well, how does it end? Does it end with the guy sort of redemptively? Okay, the narrator's sort of leading us up to a a redemptive meeting. Or or does it end, as with Jehoram, he died with no one's regret. Nobody cared. Well, the meaning of that story is, that's a sad story. That's a sad tale. Um, so how a story ends gives us a real big clue on what the narrator intends uh, for us to get. We know this uh, very well here. Every story contributes to the story. Uh, every story is some sort of upward trend or a downward trend serving redemptive history. Uh, sometimes we leave, oh, we're left with, the story of Israel, this promise for God having his people forever, to enjoy him forever, and we're left with one guy in the middle of nowhere that we hope somebody saves. Otherwise, this is done. Or Israel has the widest borders they've ever had. You see, All of it contributing to the story. And the cross and resurrection will bring stability to all of that. It sort of brings that water, finds its level. The cross and resurrection help those stories find their level. Uh serving the glory of God in Christ for the benefit of his people. That makes sense so far? Would you tell me if it didn't? God is consistently the central character, whether explicitly or implicitly, famously. The word God's never mentioned in the book of Esther. But who's the main character? God's nevertheless the main character. So whether explicitly or implicitly, God is always central to the narrative. The the story always rises and falls with reference to God. Narratives aren't primarily morality plays. Uh, They're not primarily generically or sort of proverbially applicable to everyone. They are all relative to, uh, to God. 
so maybe a, and I'm sure you've heard this here. If at the end of an Old Testament narrative and we're trying to tidy that up and make sense of it and what would God have us know, if whatever that is could be affirmed or obeyed or appreciated by any Muslim or any Mormon, well, let's go back to the drawing board here. <laughs> right? It has to be relative to what God has done in Christ. It has to serve that purpose and that glory. That makes sense? Lastly, God will be God. Uh, Because of our finitude, we can be tempted towards frustration that God doesn't always reveal himself in, in tidy ways, does he? He doesn't do that in our life, in our own experiences. He doesn't do that in the Bible story. God is personal. He's not abstract. When, we, when we're dealing with persons, we're not dealing with sort of monolithic, uh, monotone messages. When we're dealing with people, we're dealing with vibrant, life-giving um, embodiment, incarnation, and we're dealing with God that way. God is... Uh, If we can say it this way, I'm tempted to launch into a discussion of the Trinity here, but I'll refrain. God is more than the sum of his parts, just like we are more than the sum of our parts. So you can't just add up God is love and God is grace and God is mercy, and we measure some sort of degrees of that, and we add it up, but God is just all of those things added up to the nth degree, times in. Well, that, no, God is a person. He's not. He's not the sum of parts. Does that make sense? Um, and so we, we have good stories, and especially Bible stories, invite us, and we, we are confronted with the complexities of the nature of God. When you get to Exodus 32 and you find God ready to destroy Israel and start over, and Moses, what appears, and Moses talks him down. Have you read that? And you wonder, what kind of God is this? Who, who are we dealing with here? Well, we're dealing with a person, for sure. We don't need, I don't want to resolve any of that, but that's sort of the, let, let the story unfold. That's the purpose of telling the story that way. Let's confront this God and wrestle with who this God is and how he relates with his people. Well, God is this and God is that, therefore, one plus one, he ought to act this way. Habakkuk thought that, didn't he? Habakkuk's begging God, won't you do something? And what did God tell Habakkuk? You might want to sit down for this one. I'm hearing your prayer, and I'm going to answer your prayer, but I'm going to use, I'm going to side with your enemies. I'm going to side with my enemies over against my people. And Habakkuk says, that doesn't, that doesn't register. And eventually God breaks Habakkuk down to where he prays, well, just do it. If you've got to take everything away, then okay. Uh, revive your work in the midst of the years. That's good storytelling. Um, that's good theology. It's good theological development and, and a way for spiritual formation in our own lives. Every human character is measured against God, but God is never measured against human character. So, so while we're writing this, uh, these tough stories about God, 
we will be out of bounds when we say, well, if I were him, I would do it this way. He ought to do it this way because that's what we would do. We do that in our own hearts, don't we? Even on our own personal experiences. Like, God, if, if I were going to accomplish something, I don't think I would have done it that way. Well, God's going to be God. Uh, he, he's, not, he's not measured against some standard outside himself to which he's got to conform with the rest of us. We wrestle with him. One day that's all going to make sense. Uh, okay, so all, all that makes sense. Any, any questions, comments, corrections, rebuke? Insights, help? I think we ought to feel the liberty that, that I mean, God wrote the stories in a certain way, and if you, in a story you're like, man, that just does not sit well with me right now. That just does not. Okay. That's the way the story's been told, is to lead us to that place. And the redemptive history resolves that and works it out, for sure. Uh, but that's giving ourselves to the way God has revealed himself and it, his relationship with his people. Questions, thoughts at all for this little last extended quote? This is at the uh, end of uh, Michael Wilcox's commentary on uh, the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Couldn't resist it. Uh, Never imagine the men of the Bible lived in a world disconnected from ours. They were real people in whom the same God uh, is at work in the same ways as, uh, as he is today. There is one church. One faith, one Lord. Allow for the differences of language and culture. We've talked about that before. Allow for the fulfillment in Christ of the promises of priesthood and kingship. Allow for the completing of God's revelation in Scripture. But the principles have never changed. To know the, he had chroniclers, to know the narrator's God is to know the God of all history who lives and loves today as he always has done and will do forever. So you and I, when we interact with an Old Testament narrative, we're not interacting with an ancient story that God told long ago, but we need a different story now. That's the same God. Loving loving his people in the same kind of ways uh, for our benefit. Those things were written for our benefit, Paul might say, 1 Corinthians. Thoughts, questions at all? You got like two seconds.